This is Mission.org. Hello and welcome to Marketing Trends. This is producer Ben Wilson. This episode of Marketing Trends features an interview with Ada Chen Recky, founder and COO of NoteJoy. Ada was also the founder of Connected HQ and has held marketing positions with LinkedIn, SurveyMonkey, Mochi Media, and Microsoft. On this episode, Ada joins Lauren and Ian to discuss how to structure and hire for an effective marketing organization. Enjoy. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot, B2B marketing automation on the world's number one CRM. Are you ready to take your B2B marketing to new heights? With Pardot, marketers can find and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast, or click on the link in our show notes. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at The Mission. And to my right, I switch sides, I'm on the other side of the table now, is Lauren Vaccarello. Hello, thank you for joining me on this side of the table. And we have in studio, special guest, Ada, how's it going? Hi, I'm doing great. We are super excited to talk to you today. You have a ton of experience in and around tech and specifically productivity, which is very exciting for marketers because I feel like we're very busy mm-hmm. and we're rarely productive. Some some more productive than others, but yes. So amongst the fact that we're going to talk a lot of marketing stuff, we also just want to talk a little bit about productivity and your new startup, NoteJoy. Can you give us a quick elevator pitch? Yeah. So NoteJoy is a collaborative notes app for teams. And you know what we've really done is we've taken some of the tried and true principles around note taking, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with, and elevated it to bring it to teams. So how do you really kind of capture a lot of the lightweight knowledge that teams need to get their work done and then you know, translate that into a really searchable, usable interface that really doesn't have a lot of the heavyweight stuff that makes these modern tools hard to use? And this is your second company. So you also founded a company called Connected HQ back in the back in the day. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So I'm at this point. I've spent just about um, a decade plus in productivity, and so Connected was one of the early forays. We did a company called Connected, which was a contact management startup, really focused on delivering contact management without the work. And um, after launching it, we were acquired by LinkedIn. And you know the, the rest is sort of history. It's actually part of LinkedIn now as part of the address book, part of those network digests that you guys get in terms of birthday notifications or people in the news or job change reminders, that type of stuff. You know, kind of then spent a lot more time in productivity, not only at LinkedIn, helping people build better relationships and you know really focusing on how do you build, maintain, and leverage your network. But then also moved into SurveyMonkey, where I was SVP of marketing. And SurveyMonkey really had this amazing productivity mission that was inspiring to me around how do you help people answer questions with data? How do you really make that accessible, not only to individuals, but also small businesses and also to larger organizations? And you know, moved on from there to start NoteJoy and do my second startup. You know what's crazy? SurveyMonkey is one of those tools that I've used. I don't think I've ever technically paid for it. So I think I've I've used all freemium versions. But it's one of those tools that, I mean, gosh, I've probably been using for however long. I mean, however long it's been around probably. Yeah, I think it was was founded in the late 90s. 
believe it or not. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those tools that it's sticking power is ridiculous. Whenever you think about a survey, also one of the first early startups that used an animal in the name that really crushed it. <laughs> like that's so popular now, right? Like so many companies like Bonobos or all these different companies have animal names and animal mascots and all that sort of stuff. SurveyMonkey, great brand recognition. And if it helps, I've paid for SurveyMonkey. Oh, good, good. I'm happy um, to hear that. <laughs> I my my plug for Survey Monkeys. They've got a really great enterprise product right now, and um, at Box we built our entire customer experience program based on top of Survey Monkeys enterprise product. So awesome! I didn't uh, know that. Yeah, that's yeah. fun. Um, it was great for being able to. We plugged the whole thing into Tableau, and we're able to do things like trend NPS data over time at both the account level the administrator influencer level and then on the user level. So it gave us a really good picture of where are our customers on an aggregate level and on an individual level. And we standardized all of our surveys across the company on SurveyMonkey. So whether the product org was sending something or marketing or customer success or whoever. So we had a much better view of the customer. That's awesome. I kind of buried the lead here because today we're going to be talking about the anatomy of a marketing organization. We're going to be physicists. Nope. Physicians? <laughs> Something. Physicists? Nope. Wrong one. Yep. Close enough. And you wrote a post a little while back about the anatomy of a marketing organization. Can you share kind of like what was the genesis for this? Like, why did you feel like you needed to get this out into the world? So I wrote a post on my blog, adachen.com. And you, you guys are all welcome to head there and actually read this in more detail, but I'll attempt to summarize it. Yeah, we'll link it up in the show notes. Sure. And um, on, on my blog, I, I wrote this post about anatomy of a marketing organization and several other sort of basic posts and some on some level around how marketing works. Because, you know, as I work with and advise startups and, you know, spend time um, talking to people about how they build their companies up, one of the most common questions I would really get is, how should I think about building my marketing organization? Who do I hire as my first marketer? And you know, am I making the right decisions around how to structure my marketing organization? Because it, there are just so many different ways to do it. Is there a right way of doing it? And so in that post, um, I kind of just laid out what to me felt pretty basic, but actually is maybe not not super well-known or well-defined because it's also very specific to tech, what are some of the common teams and functions that you see within a marketing org? So for instance, a creative and content team, a demand generation team, field marketing, marketing communications, ops, marketing research, online marketing, product marketing. I had eight different teams and types, and you know, there's always this common question of, what do I do? And mm -hmm. what do they do? What are their deliverables? How do I hire against this? And it's so important to have this vocabulary too, if you're a founder, because just by using some of these keywords, you'll be able to actually figure out better ways to search against and find the type of talent experience that you need. So if you're not familiar with demand generation, but for instance, you really need someone to drive leads and build the business for your B2B sales team, it would be hard not knowing that term to then go to LinkedIn and then search for someone who would be a marketer against that because the disciplines are so different once you really start putting them into practice. On a previous episode, we had this great conversation with this woman, Vanessa, who runs marketing at Clara Labs. And we were talking about when you're hiring for marketers, like what, what, do, you, what do you look for? And I'd love to get your take on 
when you've built marketing teams, what do you what do you look for in marketers? Yeah, I mean, I really I really get down to the kind of what I believe are the first principles when I think about hiring. What are the business outcomes that you're trying to drive through this hire? And I think the common pitfall that people have is they kind of look at a set of activities that are being done throughout the organization, like putting out the newsletter, interviewing customers, putting together collateral, et cetera, et cetera. And then they think, gosh, it would be really helpful if we had a marketer who could actually take all of these activities and make them coherent. The real question is then, you know, what's the purpose of these activities, right? Like, can you really find someone who can help you drive against your business objective of building brand awareness and, you know, getting downloads and getting subscribers versus driving leads? And if you just hire someone to start keeping that ball rolling, you're not actually necessarily going to get momentum against the actual metrics that you want. So, you know, the first thing that I really look for is what are the business outcomes first? And then I kind of take that and, you know, my suggestion would be to map that against what are the type of activities that you think or the experiences that you think people that are good at driving those outcomes would do. And then that really kind of gets you to the first facet, which is experience, right? Like ideally you would have someone who's had the experience of trying to drive the th outcomes that you're trying to achieve and bring them in and transplant all of that great knowledge and experience and get them rolling there. In the event that you don't have the experience, um, what I really look for is curiosity, right? And, you know, I look for people that sort of have this innate aptitude and interest in your business, your industry. And often that can actually lead to surprisingly good outcomes, especially when you're in a new market or your pre-product market fit, and it's not really clear what experiences that you actually have. And so, you know, one story I have about this is actually very early in my marketing career. I was working at this company called Mochi Media, and Mochi Media was this online games ad network that was backed by Excel and Shasta. And it was kind of in the early days when those flash-based games would spread all over the internet. Mm -hmm. And I was the first marketing hire and I had about a year of experience under my belt, not in marketing. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I was brought on and, you know, was the first and only head of marketing within the Series A back startup and sort of inadvertently stumbled into um, doing what I think is like pretty great developer marketing. Because what we did is we started by just talking to a lot of the flash game developers that we were targeting and we didn't have that many but we wanted to grow that group and so we would ask them things like what do you read mm -hmm. where do you spend time why do you build these games what are your goals out of these games and what became incredibly clear after talking with them is that they don't attend any of the gaming conferences they rarely google for things they don't read any trade publications. They don't really pay attention to the media. And in fact, they spent all their time hanging out on these um, game developer forums where they were like, you know, the underside of the indie game developer market before it really was a thing. Mm -hmm. And really what they craved most was the recognition and kudos from their peers within that game developer group. And so then based on that insight, we actually launched a whole series of flash game contests and then basically created a whole contest series and uh, features on our blog, basically just rewarding them, recognizing them, spreading the word and helping promote their games. And we saw a 5X uptick 
in the number of games in the network just from the buzz that we were able to create from the developer marketing side. And then later on, we even built this 500 attendee conference of all these indie game developers because they didn't have a conference or event to call their own. Mm -hmm. And so if you'd asked me as a marketer then, what channels or what experience do you need? And you'd brought someone in who sort of groped for the common you know, handy tools that many marketers use, like email mm -hmm. and paid advertising and conference and trade show sponsorships, it wouldn't have worked, right? Or, you know, I actually don't think that it would have reached them based off of going back to those first principles of understanding the customer and trying to build campaigns against them. And I think it's a really, really good point of the, how do you put your assumptions aside? And mm -hmm. it's easy to go in and say, I know where people are. These this, these are game developers. They're going to go to game developer conferences. Here's the the tactics that we're going to do. But a lot of what it sounds like is you went in without any assumptions and you really talked to the customers and tried to glean real insights. And based on the insights you gathered, that's how you made this plan. Absolutely. And I think that's actually one of the core first you know jobs that a marketer has to do and ideally a product manager and ideally a lot of other people <laughs> yes. as well in the organization. But um, it's really common to kind of allow your biases to color mm -hmm. your marketing efforts, your messaging, your product. And there are many cases where it's really unintuitive. So um, another example I have is when I was at LinkedIn following the acquisition of Connected, I spent time heading the growth marketing organization at LinkedIn, and I also worked on LinkedIn's premium subscriptions. Mm -hmm. But when I was on the consumer side thinking about consumer growth and invites, at one point we're working on updating the LinkedIn profile. Mm -hmm. And we did these focus groups on the headline that we had for the profile, which was stand out and get found. And so we put that up against these consumers in the focus group. And so good. <laughs> it was like shocking. People were like, no, mm -hmm. that's not what I want to do. I don't want to stand out. I don't want to get found. Like that's actually, it's like standing on a stage and getting the spotlight shown on you yep. and you get stage fright and it's intensely uncomfortable. So having that as the headline for the campaign well, you have all these like super type A people at LinkedIn all, you know, saying, of course, everyone yeah. wants to stand out and get found. But from a consumer based perspective, they actually really viewed it as a way to tell their story mm -hmm. to the people that they knew, to the close relationships that they have. And it wasn't about standing out, getting found, particularly if it might imply disloyalty to your employer, or, yep. you know, a whole bunch of other bad stuff. And so that insight from the customer research was actually a huge part in forming a better, you know, profile launch overall. And it's the it's important for us to remember that our experiences aren't everybody's experiences. Yes. And you know, the average, you know, super type A marketer in LinkedIn in Silicon Valley is not the only type of person there is and it's a LinkedIn has a massive audience and it was a seemed like a really great way to remind yourselves of there are very different types of people out there and we need to cater to totally yeah yeah reed hoffman talks has talked about how the lions the linkedin open networkers how like they were their power users mm -hmm. it's like you know they had like fifty thousand connections and all this like crazy stuff and what they wanted for certain things like they wanted basically like like feature creep right like they wanted like new new product features and they end up having to like ignore a lot of this stuff because it's like 
that type of person was not like the other 300 million people. It's like those were a very specific subset of people. And so like when you had said that piece about like, you know, get found, I just thought of every single CMO out there like, oh no, gosh, then I'm going to get hit up by a thousand people, right? <laughs> it's like, they know I have a budget and there's, um, it's just going to be the end of my DMs or whatever. But I think that that's one of those situations. If you know, you have to be very careful around the different personas that you have, like it's mm-hmm. people who don't want to be in the spotlight. Twitter has a great feature that allows you to promote like yourself, right? Like your own tweets. And I think the vast majority of people who see that, this would be my assumption, are just like, man, that's kind of weird. Like the, the CEO yeah. of, uh, of T-Mobile, he's been like, they've promoted his tweets like, a, I, they must have done hundreds and hundreds of millions of impressions on that guy's thing. And again, that might be working. I'm not saying that's a bad campaign, but there's not a lot of people that necessarily want that type of spotlight where it's so follow me or so connect with me. It's like, it's just not a natural thing for a lot of people. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's, that's actually one of the challenges with making an early hire for a startup or for a company, because there's sort of this temptation or this desire to take a marketer from a company that you aspire to have the same growth metrics or audience Mm -hmm. or, you know, success as, and then plop them into your organization and cross your fingers and then truly just hope that, you know, all of those things will take off. And, you know, that's that's really, I think, the heart of one of the challenges that come from how do you hire a marketer? Because marketing to an extent, in order to be successful, needs to be personalized to the company and it needs to be personalized to the customer base. And I kind of chose those two dimensions because companies, as they grow and they expand and they have different product portfolios, they actually add on more customer bases and then your tactics actually change. You might need to split, you know, centralize or decentralize your organization over time. And so, you know, when you're thinking about that interview process and, you know, building that marketing organization, it's not probably the best advice to go out and hire someone from all of those functions that I just listed mm-hmm. right off the bat. I think it is sort of going back to what are the principles of the business objectives you're trying to achieve, figure out some of those experiences, and then bring on someone who has some of that core tool set, but then also is going to fit and build in really well with the rest of your marketing team. And so I love process and like, you know, really having, as you can imagine, a very productive workflow (laughs) with hiring. One of the ways that I've actually done this is I pick a really consistent interview loop. So I always try to make sure that the loop is not just marketers because, Mm -hmm. you know, marketing is inherently a cross-functional organization, I pick the people like the product managers, the engineers, the designers, folks that would have to work with marketing. And I basically try to assign them each a particular area or topic that they are supposed to interview against. And my advice is always pick the same questions because if you ask five five candidates the same question, you'll actually get amazed by the range of responses and mm-hmm. the quality of responses that you get to be able to compare against. You know, we have them always pick the same topics. We have them meet the same people and we put a decent chunk of candidates through that. And really what we're feeling out is their proficiency in those topics that people are assigned. And then also, you know, I think to your point earlier, the ability for that marketer to adapt their existing experiences and tool sets and then really think like, well, you know, we did this at Twitter, but 
for your well, this company, I actually don't think that's the best call because it doesn't make sense for your product. Mm-hmm. And like someone who can really feel their way into that is, you know, to me, like that's a great signal that they would be a great hire. Oh, I, I think that's really, really great insight. And I've come across marketers and marketing leaders that go in and say, look, I have a playbook. This is what I do. I run the same playbook at every company. And I've talked to founders and different startups that are just like, I want a marketer who knows exactly what they're going to do, who's going to run, you know, the playbook that was successful at, you know, X company. And I mean, I fundamentally disagree with that entire mentality because what makes one company successful and what makes one strategy really successful at one company is not necessarily going to work at another organization. And it's the, to your point, the adaptability. Organizations are all a little bit different, are unique organisms, and you have to adjust strategy, execution based on what is successful in an organization. If it's, this is a centralized marketing structure, this is decentralized, based on the type of audience, this makes more sense. Um, So I thought there was really, really great insights. What are those types of questions that you ask? For... For marketers. Like when you're looking to hire a new marketer to your organization in one of those eight roles, what are the types of questions that you're looking for? Yeah, um, I think that there are multiple types of questions that one might ask, like, you know, you might ask just basic proficiency questions. So for instance, if you need a marketer who needs to be competent and quantitative with testing, right, you might simply just ask them, talk me through some examples of a situation that you've been where you need to leverage data. And so I'm a big fan of a lot of the situational questions where you Mm -hmm. can actually ask for examples of press proficiency and then kind of dive down and figure out a, what did they do, mm-hmm. right, in that situation? Like, what was their individual contribution? And then also really probe deeply to make sure that they understand, besides putting the numbers into a model, mm-hmm. how it all works and how it all fits together. So there's sort of that category of questions. So give me an example of a time when you had to use data. If I showed you two different designs here and you needed to test them, walk me through how you would try to test them. Can you give me an example when data showed one thing and you know the results showed other and why, right? So you're trying to understand their knowledge of A-B testing, their knowledge of biases, right? Their knowledge of, you know, kind of how all of those elements of experimentation work. And then I often like to ask a lot of questions around the product and the business, mm-hmm. right, that they're interviewing for. So maybe even saying, if you were to launch our product again today, how would you do it differently? Or, you know, how would you do it the same? Like walk mm-hmm. me through a go-to-market and what would be the questions that you would ask and the resources that you need to try to understand their ability to put all the pieces together. And then finally, I think one of my favorite questions is actually the case study. So one thing I've learned through some hard experience is that people are really different and they function really differently around time intensive exercises. So just because someone is terrible at brainstorming in front of you on the spot doesn't actually mean that they have bad ideas or bad execution. Mm-hmm. It's different personality types. And some people are, to your point, really good on the fly. And some people need time to sit back and process. Yeah. And both types of people are critical for an organization. And sometimes you're just going to get the person who's best at BSing. Because, yes, right. Um, this guy. <laughs> 
<laughs> right. And so from that hard one experience, I mean, one of the things that I'm a huge fan of is not super heavy weight, but giving them a prompt maybe in advance or mm -hmm. a day or two in advance of the interview and saying, here's a couple paragraphs with a situation. And if you could come in and walk me through your answer to this case, and it could be in whatever format you'd like, mm -hmm. but answer this question for us and we'll have you do a presentation in front of our team or you know, one of us will ask you this. Giving people that extra time to prepare is actually such a helpful exercise instead of doing the live in-person case study. Like I, I'll never forget years and years ago, I was hiring somebody and he was fine during the interview process. It wasn't, you know, blowing everyone away, but was good and kept passing. And we ended up doing the case and the presentation was so good and so spot on that after he left the, the feedback round was, okay, who helped him? <laughs> this is not, I love that, yeah. this was too close who was sitting coaching him on this because he couldn't have gotten this yeah and yeah. everyone's like it wasn't me he doesn't know any of us we we had a hire very similar to that at survey monkey where they came in it was for another group and they did their presentation and then in the details of the presentation they had engineering estimates Oh on gosh. the number of days that it would take to get the work done and then the really scary thing was actually was accurate and so we asked, like, who helped you with it? And it turned out through their ingenuity, they had networked their way to a SurveyMonkey engineer and sat down with that engineer who was their friend and costed the entire initiative that they were proposing with that friend in a ballpark term. And we hired the person because, I mean, that just shows, like, it's just this great opportunity to show, like, your ability to take initiative. And it yes. wasn't cheating. It was actually more like great, we now know that this person, if they came to this job, is already pre-wired to be able to do the cross-functional yeah. work and do outreach to kind of put together a solid plan. Absolutely. And, it, and goes, problems have solutions. I can figure this out and I can come up with a creative way of doing this. And you find that out before their first day, which is amazing. What about the hardest roles to hire within this group? Like, What are the hardest marketing roles that you've seen that just like for whatever reason, there's a skills gap or there's like an ingenuity gap or a creativity gap. What are those things that you've seen either from your peers or yourself that just you just kind of have an open wreck there for a while? Well, you know, I'm, I'm looking at you too as I say <laughs> this because you guys are really great at this. But, you know, in my experience, it's really hard to find people that are great at content and great at social media. Go team. And, you know, the challenge is really that there's so much power in content and social media. Like, you know, I've spent a lot of time looking at mediums like Instagram and the power of Instagram and these stories and everything else is that you can actually create this sense of intimacy. Mm -hmm. Like you get to know the people or the stories or the company or the customers through their social media in a way that you can't with a content piece or an article or just a generic video. And trying to create that emotional affinity mm -hmm. is really difficult for companies, period. And then finding the right person who can actually channel the brand of the company to the extent that they're able to handpick and curate the content, make it really interesting, produce it at a meaningful level, and then kind of you know push it to the extreme where people are in love with your brand, that is 
way, way above what the vast majority of companies are doing today, where most content machines within organizations are just that. They're a machine, mm -hmm. right? They have a content goal of X number of articles a week or X number of publications a month. They aren't really pushing you know, the envelope on yeah. what they could actually be doing in terms of bringing great ideas to the table. And, you know, in the worst cases, they're really off brand, yep. right? And they're super corporate, or they just kind of feel like something a corporate communications group came up with, as opposed to something that as a customer or as a member of their community really feel like, oh, they get me. They yeah. get it's me. the genuine, the authenticity. Yeah. And that's just, it's hard to find. And those people are, they're, they're worth so much, but you know, they're also usually not at the top of the organization. Right. And that's really what makes it very, very hard to find those people. Yeah. I mean, we talk about all the time at the mission is that the thing that's so difficult to find with good writers is that a good writer isn't like twice as good as the person who's average. They're like a hundred times better or a thousand times better. It's like Leo Tolstoy was a better writer by like, you know, 1000 X than the people that were around him. And so when you're hiring for that, you have literally no idea what that looks like unless you are going to go read their work and go actually experience it. So when you, when you think about this idea of like the creativity around content or having a coherent, smart, funny, interesting, engaging brand and a singularity of purpose. Like there's a reason why the best creative shows right now have a writing team that are showrunners that have a vision for Game of Thrones or a vision for Breaking Bad or these sort of things is because it happens in a vacuum in between your ears, right? Like that sort of stuff is really hard to do. And what people do is they race to the bottom and outsource it to other countries of just trying to get to word counts to try to like beat algorithms. And it's like that sort of stuff is, it's a losing proposition. It's in so many ways why the publishing industry has had to evolve because it's not just about how many pieces of content are we cranking out? Because if, if someone's goals are, you know, I want you to produce five pieces of content a week, well, I can crank out five pieces of content. Yeah, you're going to get them. You, you'll get them. But is it better to say our ultimate goal is to really drive awareness and engage with this type of customer? Now tell me how to do that in the most compelling way that is reflects a deep understanding of the customer. And maybe it's an article. Maybe it's a podcast. Maybe it's a video. But there's this element of what are the right metrics for content people and how do you get them to have this customer empathy. Yeah, well, and yeah. There's... And there's, um, I think Content Marketing Institute puts out this annual survey. I, I, I don't know if it's annual or if it's every now and then, but the trends are actually pretty disturbing, right? Mm. There's like way more content out there every yeah. year. Everyone's spending more and more on it. And the 100X difference, you know, like what a HubSpot or a Gainsight or, you know, on the consumer mm -hmm. side, OkCupid does like a piece every couple years that everyone sees across the internet. Yeah. Their gains on the content that they're putting out are vastly different than the five article a week company. Oh yeah. I mean the everybody needs to have a corporate blog. Everybody needs to have a, you know, a content hub that's putting out stuff and trying to figure out how to do that. It's like you're not really back to your point. Like that's the first principles of like, what are we trying to achieve and why? Yeah. If it's to, yeah. if it's to seem 
like we're smart. Like there's a lot of ways to seem smart. If it's to influence buying decisions, like there's a lot of ways to do that. Putting out a bunch of, you know, 500 to 600 word articles that nobody reads is definitely not the way to do that. Yeah. So I think, I mean, that's one of the top marketing unicorns. It's like very hard to find. I would say the other mythical beast is often the um, product marketer that like really can bridge product engineering and Mm -hmm. marketing. And um, that is really tough because it's a really common function. And a lot of people have that title, but there's sort of this magic that happens when you have a product marketer that really can get into the weeds with the product and engineering team and has Mm -hmm. earned their trust. So can influence roadmap way ahead, way in advance, is bringing data that's actually key into the discussion with the rest of folks at the table, and then is sort of executing on bringing that out to a go-to-market or you know, translating that into marketing campaigns that make sense. And the big gap is often just that many marketers aren't super technical, mm-hmm. right? So as soon as you start working with a product and engineering team and they're talking about you know, sprints and scrum and know we had a planning period a while back. We're actually now in an execution period and, you know, then figuring out like, how do you file a bug and like, what's the right way to phrase it to an engineer so they understand how to reproduce that bug? Like those types of things are not inherently taught from a marketing standpoint. It's really part of this toolkit that can make a product marketer really successful, not necessarily to know all of that, and the nuts and bolts because you know they aren't product managers, but to be able to interact successfully mm-hmm. with that part of the organization to the extent that you're able to, you know, really influence the roadmap and you know get that product out there more successfully. So I'd love to talk a little bit about the family business. <laughs> um, you have a really interesting co-founder and an interesting brother. Is this like, do you have some sort of like magic sauce? What do you guys, you know, eat at the dinner table? Like what's going on? (laughs) So what you're referring to is um, my co-founder and our CEO is Sachin Reiki, who I'm also married to. And so Sachin and I are on our second company together. So we started Connected together. We co-led and worked on many teams together at LinkedIn. And now we're doing Nocho together. And uh, so Sachin's really like a product leader, an engineer, a designer, like he's he's the Mr. Renaissance man on the product side. And um, my brother, my brother is Andrew Chen. He's the general partner at Andreessen Horowitz. I'm immensely proud of him and we spend a lot of time together. I don't think there's any magic sauce. It just kind of happened that way. But it turns out though, that when we hang out, it is so much fun. Because, you know, we're sort of interchangeably talking about the industry and often very shared networks. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, also giving each other a lot of crap about random things, right? So Andrew, for instance, recently has been encouraging me to work out. And so he's always asking me my progress on my lifts, right? Like my deadlift progress <laughs> or like, am I benching right? Or is my form good? And it's it's pretty funny because I call him my tiger brother because it's just like that whole Amy Chua thing on getting like tiger mommed. So yeah, yeah, my yeah. tiger yeah. brother is always like, when are you going to blog again? <laughs> <laughs> and um, I'm actually intensely shy about blogging. Which is why I haven't blogged in a little while, but you it's shouldn't. like always it's nice. Your, Your content great. is fantastic. <laughs> it's really kind of you, but you know, it's one of those things where I have that you know inner conversation that oh well, you know, 
maybe this isn't that useful or that insightful. And I get lots of feedback that it is, but it takes me some work to get over that inertia to blog. And so having family, right, that are all sort of in the industry is like really helpful. Yeah, if you ever want to drop in, we'll give you a uh, we'll give you a little uh, feature in marketing trends newsletter or something nice. like that. You can we can do a little uh, I don't know Ada's corner or something. We have well <laughs> yeah. first we need Lauren's corner to make its uh, resurgence. <laughs> I, I I share a similar writing writing mentality of you. view. Yeah, of, it's true. Although I have technically written two books about marketing, writing is such a chore for me. Yeah, <laughs> and it, I'm like I know I should do it. You know what? Both of us should commit to writing more this year. It's true. I think that's a good commitment. Yes. You know what? It betters everyone else if we do this. That's think of true. this as our way of giving back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like, in, and Sachin and Andrew both are really prolific as far as writing, and they really enjoy it. And so one of the things that I've noticed is sort of the difference in mentality when yes. it comes to writing and sharing content. So Andrew has told me that he's able to put together a post, mm -hmm. you know, and he has these ideas, he outlines, and he just cranks it out. I'm like, if, if only it was that great. Like I put together multiple versions. And then Sachin, when he shares a post, is totally the person who will post it on social media and then keep checking it throughout the day <laughs> because all of those little likes are like dopamine hits. And, you know, he just really enjoys the appreciation of the content. Whereas I post it. And when I post a blog post, I kind of have my little run book of, after I post it, where do I share it? What mm -hmm. do I do with it? How do I optimize it? But I do those to force myself to do it. Mm -hmm. And then at a certain point, I'll basically literally fling my phone across the room <laughs> because I don't want to see. Because you're done. Yes. Log uh, off, close the laptop, put, right. that, put that in the trash can, set the trash can on fire, put the ashes in the ocean. Exactly. And then sort of 48 hours or 24 hours, I'll sort of sheepishly log back in and look at my like, you know, however many likes I have and think, well, I guess that wasn't so bad. We'll have to tag <laughs> both of them when we post this episode. So they think they're getting blown up on all the likes, yes. but it's actually you. And I think right. um, the people listening to this podcast should find ways to communicate with Ada and tell her that she needs to write more. That's true, 100%. I have one random question before the lightning round. Has anyone ever tried to introduce you to your brother or your husband because they don't know that it's your brother or your husband? Where it's like, do you know? You There's know this who you should talk to. <laughs> and Andreessen, you should totally meet him. I have never had that happen, but I've often had the um, interaction where people will interact with us and not realize that we're related or married. And so at LinkedIn, for example, with Sachin, we would always be in meetings together. And often because I was the marketing leader and he was the product counterpart, we would just be running meetings mm -hmm. side by side and you know, often in a small group setting. And we're so used to sort of working in that professional capacity that there have been times when people have sat in multiple rounds of these meetings with us and then had an epiphany much later on, like, oh, you guys are you guys are married because you can't tell, I guess. I and mean, we're not holding hands in a yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. right in like a design review or something together. And then for Andrew, um, not really, but it's often a shock. Like there are people who kind of have known me or him for many, many years. And Chen is such a like, common last name that the chances that the two Chens would actually be related, very, very low. So one day, one day that question. is going to happen and you have to, you have to let us know if like, 
I met this person and they were great. And then they introduced me to my brother. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I always like it when people tell me that they meet Andrew and they're like, oh, I know you. You're Andrew Chen's sister. Yeah. Oh, that's, oh, yeah. that's so, really great. Oh, be like, oh, you're Ada's brother. And you're like, he's probably like, she's my sister. So Chad and Stephanie, who you've you've met, Stephanie, not Chad. Chad's in the, he's holed up writing. Otherwise he doesn't get treats. But uh <laughs> There are, as many of our listeners uh, may know, our my co-founders are are married and uh, and have different last names, and all, there's all sorts a whole backstory of a lot of different stuff about that. But it's definitely the same sort of thing where she's always like, "It's co-founder first when we're at work. Uh, <laughs> it's like after work you get we uh, then it's uh, then it's spouse." Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty good. Okay, lighting round. Okay, are you ready? Ready. Number one, what app? Are you using on your phone that is the most fun? Notejoy. Oh yeah. Ooh, well played. <laughs> no, that's the app on my phone that's the most fun. No, uh, just kidding. Just kidding. It's your second most fun app. Second most fun app right now is so so it's January right now as we're recording this, and I'm using this app called Habit Share. And Habit Share is actually a daily habit tracker. So you can try to put in things that you're trying to go work on. So for example, I have a fitness goal of trying to go three times a week. And so this app actually lets you go in and um, set a goal with your goal being three times a week or two times a week or once a week or whatever, and then update it just with a quick check and what you did, and then see it in a calendar view with all of the dots lit up. And you can you know share it with others for accountability and other things. But I'm actually really enjoying using it. I've been using it for quite a while. Favorite team sports or otherwise? Gosh, so the joke that people make about me is that I know nothing about sports. It doesn't and need to be so sports. I, too. I had a panic attack the other day, not quite a panic attack, but I was like, oh, I just saw something on social media about Super Bowl. Is it Super Bowl? Is it this weekend? Is it next weekend? <laughs> That's really good. I like how it's not the Super Bowl, it's just Super Bowl. Yeah, exactly. The su- Does it happen multiple times a year? What, what sport is that? That's um, football, right? Yeah. Yeah, but I actually, I do enjoy watching basketball. What is the favorite book you've read recently? Ooh, that's a good one. Fiction or nonfiction? Either one. Okay, so the nonfiction book I've been recommending is The China Study. And so The China Study is actually this um, seminal work. It's written by this guy with the last name Campbell, where they looked at all of the health and fitness and biomarkers of tons of these Chinese people across you know they, all of the different province, provinces and regions of China. And they use that because they're all genetically similar to infer what are some of the best diets and wow. health and lifestyle changes that you can make in order to minimize your chances of cancer Interesting. or um, to minimize your chances of type 1 diabetes. Because China is really interesting since everyone has sort of the same genetic pool. But they've found in, for instance, rural provinces where they have almost zero cardiovascular risk. Mm-hmm. And then the same people, if they move to a more urban environment and they have a different diet and environmental factors, they it basically looks like the Western world in terms of your likelihood of dying from high blood pressure or cholesterol or other things. So even though it's branded China study, I actually think it's super applicable to everyone. And it was just a really fascinating view at like what you can do in terms of lifestyle changes to um, make a difference. The, the fiction recommendation I have is this author N.K. Jemison. So she wrote this series called the Broken Earth series. And so she's a woman of color. She's actually won a whole bunch of the science fiction awards, but it's just this 
really excellent, thought-provoking fiction work that if you ever need a break and, you know, just want to have some fun, it's, I would highly recommend it. Favorite podcast? This one, of course. Uh, other than Marketing Trends, we appreciate <laughs> it, though. Um, Distant second. Favorite podcast? I tend to hop around, but I really like Radiolab. And then what are you most excited about in the future of marketing? Hmm. So I think that for marketing, I mean, I've, I've just been really excited to see the growth recently in terms of growth marketing and more quantitative marketing and sort of application of that in tech. And so what I'm really excited about is marketers moving beyond just sort of the paid acquisition channels and the landing page channels into their ability to influence product. Mm-hmm. And um, you're starting to see this more with marketing and growth teams actually having engineering resources. Um, you're starting to see this more with a lot of the tools that are coming out that give marketers deep access and leverage in terms of putting in cookies, right? Like using Signal or even Google Tag Manager mm-hmm. or you know, getting into analytics like with Tableau, with, with what you uh, mentioned earlier. And so I think that's a trend that is really exciting. I also think that there's just a ton of new channels emerging all the time in marketing. And I just think it's really cool that as marketers, we can be on the forefront of figuring out how do you make them work and how do you make them perform. Thanks so much for hanging out. This was great. We definitely need to have you back soon. We maybe we'll have to have like a whole family round table. We have enough mics. That would be hilarious. That would be so funny. We should do that. Yeah, thanks for stopping by. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Marketing Trends. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot. World-class B2B marketers use Pardot to generate and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI at every stage of the sales cycle. Empower your marketing team to become revenue-generating superheroes and let Pardot's data analysis keep an eye on the bottom line. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast or click on the link in our show notes. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration 
and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.